are listening to Objection to the Rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm Ori Givens, and this show, we're going to do a little post-July 4th discussion. We're going to listen to some an excerpt of a reading from James Earl Jones where he reads Frederick Douglass's famous work about why should people like me, people who are brown, care about the 4th of July. Plus, we're going to talk about the news of the week, and we are going to dig in a little bit to the G20 summit and the fallout from President Trump going to represent us before the world's leaders. So we've got Violet in the studio. Hey, Violet, how are you? Welcome back. Yeah, refreshed and rejuvenated. Right? Yeah, we're all so... We took a little break. As you know, we were on holiday. You heard a replay last week, and we... We got our, you know, got some sun, got out, hopefully, you know, got a little bit back in the swing of things. I know I definitely needed a break. Yeah. I was, we had, we worked a lot in June. Like June was, June was a lot with Pride and, and launching this show and everything that was going on. It was, we needed a good time. I, I spent a lot yeah. of time on the beach. Yeah. Um, you went the to the sun. Hamptons. What did you do? I did. Uh, I spent some time with uh, friends and family and uh, just like relaxed. Chill. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was a good time. And. The news cycle was kind of calm. You know, there were some things going on for sure, but it was, you know, everybody got to kind of, I think, hopefully decompress a little bit. That was, yeah. that was what the holiday was about, even though, you know, I think we're going to talk a little bit about later about 4th of July. And, and, you know, it's hard now because we have different, I know I have different feelings about the country and about patriotism right, now and that right. idea of like, you know, unwavering faith in the United States of America. So right. we're going to break that down. But let's talk about the news first. Um, one thing that happened just very recently is kind of breaking. There was a shooting at a mall here in Brooklyn, the Kings Plaza Center. There was nobody injured, but there was a gunman that fired a shot causing panic in the mall. And, you know, this it, these things happen all over the country, around the world, these shootings in these public areas causing, you know, kind of panic, inciting panic. And, and right. here, you know, this we have to realize that we're not, you know, we're not exempt. Like right. this could happen yeah. literally yeah. down the street. Yeah. Um, do you think that we need to start looking at more security measures in public places uh, like that? I know <laughs> that that's, that's kind of the question. Right, right. Should we should we further police our, our lives and our bodies and our neighbors? Right. Yeah. Should we open our bags more? Is you that going to make things better? And you think about like New York City, right? And we're we're heavily policed. Right. I would I feel like we are have especially in some of our very densely populated public areas. You go to Grand Central. Right. You go to Times Square. You go. Right. You know, even walking around the neighborhoods in Brooklyn. You live in Milo and Flatbush, and you know we see police on our on yeah. our block regularly. Yeah, or in the park. You know, at a concert, there's huddles of police. Yeah. Huddles of police and pride, they were everywhere. And it, it's it's hard not to feel a certain type of way right. seeing all this presence of and, and it's not even just officers in normal, you know, streets um uniform. They're they're in they're in, you know, riot gear. They're in right. they're in the the anti-terrorism, right. you know, that that militaristic look with the full-on vests and the the rifles and the everything and the, and it's just like we uh, it's triggering to people for sure, yeah. you know, and there have been many articles written about just how, you know, triggering it is to see what looks like military just walking around and right. and kind of creating this air of it's supposedly protection. But it's right. it's what is it really doing? Right. Urban warfare. Who are we yeah. fighting? Who are we fighting? Um, but it, it that always every time we have a shooting like this, we talk about how, you know, you can walk into many public places without getting, you know, patted down or 
or searched and right. you know you're subject to search you guys they say they're subject to search when you're on the subways and on the trains right but a lot of times you don't get searched yeah, you and don't that's get the searched. biggest you know right. group of people you think about being on a new york city train during rush hour yeah. literally in a car with hundreds of people yeah. on a train with thousands of people in tunnels and in you know underwater and you know there's so much vulnerability and i do see you know i see the police there and i do see them doing random searches and you know i feel like sometimes it's not you know i feel like it's not really deterring Mm -hmm. but you know i also don't want more to happen i don't want them to be more aggressive it gets into a slippery slope of how involved you want the police to be Um, I remember when I went to the Philippines, I was so surprised about how much, you know, you would see police just at guardways and they'd have civil guards that would, you know, if you went into the mall, you would have to get patted down. And, you know, they had armed guards walking around in the squares and the plazas. And and I was just like, wow, I could not imagine seeing that in the United States. Fast forward now. And it's very regular. You know, we are living in that. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of with you. I don't want to see more, you know, police presence in these common spaces where we're supposed to feel free. But at the same time, we have people that want to bring guns in and shoot. And this, you know, I think the the report kind of said that this is probably like a, a dispute gone wrong. You know, this was like personal beef or something like right. that. It wasn't something that people were trying to do any mass harm. Right. But it's still a public area. Yeah. And it's still scary. It still causes pandemonium. It still causes people to worry about their safety. And you're just going to try to pick up some clothes. Right. Like nobody's trying to like, you know, insurrect or do anything. It's just you're trying to go and live about your daily life. Right. But you wonder, like, if there were more police, would it even work the way we wanted to? Would it deter people or would it just make people smarter? Well, if there, yeah, if there were more police, would there have been more casualties? Because, you know, it could have escalated the situation in such a way that more gunshots were fired and there were stray bullets. And, you know, we've seen so many instances where situations get escalated by the people who are supposed to be de-escalating them. So we can't be certain. You know, we can't be certain. And I think before we, you know, it, it always raises that question. It always raises a worry. But at the same time, I feel like we are at a point where we have to make really hard decisions about how much we want the police to be involved and what are the 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 guidelines for that involvement. Right. You know, we have to reteach these organizations how to interact with the public. I don't think it's the other way around. And I think that's the kind of perception. Yeah. So another you know thing that's going on in the uh, in the metro area um, we're all commuters. Most of us, you know, we ride the subways, the buses, right. the trains, ferries. I've actually only been on a ferry once or twice. But <laughs> anyway, moving on. So this apparently, according to Governor Cuomo, is the summer of hell. Mm-hmm. And it's being called the summer of hell because there are going to be extensive repairs done in Penn Station to help alleviate some of the issues with Amtrak trains, um, LIRR. And New Jersey Transit, as you know, over the past couple of years, there've been all kinds of derailments, crashes, issues, you know, track failures, delays, people getting stranded, all of these things. So this is apparently an attempt to fix some of those things. One of the big things that I've noticed is that the MTA, Lord help them, they are running an ad right now that basically says I watch a lot of um, New York One and a lot of like News 12 Brooklyn. Uh-huh. And so it, you see a lot of random local ads. And I've seen this one from the MTA. And I think it's, it's airing pretty widely where they're basically like, look, it's not our fault. We're going to try to like help you because they're like, you know, we this this I, I should have brought got the audio and played it because it's really it's kind of like it, it's kind of funny and it's a little bit shady because it's just like. <laughs> This is Amtrak, y'all. We're going to try to fix what Amtrak right. screwed up. Um, 
but there's this bigger question of, you know, MTA is this weird thing that is, it's a creature of the state and it's confederation of many states because we have, you know, we have a tri-state area, you have different governments that kind of right. participate. Um, but New Yorkers kind of feel like it's ours. And, and there's a lot of kind of belief that we as the city of New York have a lot of control over the MTA. We don't, we, no. we don't. Um, Antrac is obviously a private company. Um, it's funded right. by the government, but we don't have any control. Of it. So it, it affects a lot of us, but there's not a lot that we can necessarily do. Like, you know, we, 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 we're, we're kind of held without a lot of control. You know, we have these rate increases that happen every, what seems like every year, right. but, um, you know, and we have, but, but when we're told that they're to, to make these capital improvements and things like that, but are, is the money really doing that? And, and can we be confident that, you know, all of this, time and this effort that's going to be spent over the summer to fix this problem isn't going to be drawn out and isn't going to cost us more money Yeah, um, because we do as taxpayers pay right. for the MTA services, you know, in right. addition to our, you know, our Metro cards. Yeah. We're totally at its mercy. It's again, it's that it's transparency of funds, especially public funds. We don't really, we pay in, but we don't know what it's going to. Mm -hmm. And there's not really a conduit so that we can be aware of how our money is going into the uh, repairs process and how long that is. There are so many, you know, the budget, if you've looked at the New York City budget, for instance, just it, it, it's, it's, it's this grandiose thing of, of billions and billions of dollars. And, you know, the MTA budget is, is similar. It's, it's, it's all of these different pieces of a puzzle trying to figure out how money moves through this organization. And, you know, the bottom line is, is that we have an aging infrastructure. It's yeah. old, it is out of date, and it is unable to handle the volume of writers that we now have in the city. So we have to do drastic things to fix it. I just don't know. <laughs> I'm not confident that we're actually going to get, you yeah, know, the fix that fixed. we need. Right. Um, you know, but I did, I did ride the new second Avenue subway yeah. all the way up to 96th oh, yeah. street. I hadn't done that in a while. And those stations are just so nice. So pretty. They're so big and bright. How long are they going to be that pretty? Right. Oh my gosh. I'm curious. I wish somebody would set up like a time-lapse camera yeah. or something just to capture. <laughs> just like focus on one mural or something. Yeah. yeah. It's cause it's so, I mean, I, you know, I catch a church Avenue for instance, it's not a nice station. Like it needs, no. it need, I think the last upgrade was in the nineties or late eighties and it, it could not, it could use a little shine and polish, you know, I, and you look at something like that and it's just, it's gorgeous. So I, I don't know, maybe, maybe we could have spent a little bit less making the station so yeah, beautiful, right. or maybe we could have not spent money to get, you know, I, I love to be able to connect in the subway, but at the same time, you know, I don't know how much money we spent on this new wireless service. Right, right. Where did that come Where did from? that come from? <laughs> And Why like, so we, we can read that? books like that's yeah. great. I mean, reading is fundamental. It's, really cute. it's yeah. so cute. But like, I, I don't that, fix the tracks, fix the signals. And, and right. uh, keep in mind, we're Make conflating a couple of different organizations and being kind of flippant about it. But you have to think about the fact that we we send all of our, our, our tax money. We get taxed by the federal government, the state mm -hmm. government, city government, New York City takes a whole lot of money. And some of this, you know, goes to that transportation infrastructure. And if we can figure out how we can have more visibility and have more 
you know, not control, but input into the process, you know, so that we can get transportation that works for us, you know, better lines in Brooklyn. Like I I would like more subway lines in Brooklyn. So you don't have to catch two buses to get to Bushwick from Flatbush. I mean, things like that, that would make this so much easier to do. Going to Union Square to get to. Yeah. Going to Union Square to get to it. Like, yeah, I should not have to go into Manhattan to get somewhere else in Brooklyn. Like that's just kind of silly. So I think thinking about those very practical. Yeah places about you know frustration points with the infrastructure and you know thinking about these these systems like the LIRR like I've you know I've used that before to go out to Connecticut and things like that and I know that you know those you're you're dependent on these trains you know they're they're your livelihood private systems yeah very expensive very expensive you think about you know an LIR ticket you know one way is like with 10 to 12 dollars you know and you're catching that five days a week you're you're spending four hundred dollars Right. to commute every month, you know, and, and that takes a lot. That's money that comes out of your pocket and you have to expect a reliability of service. If you're going to pay $400 to get to work and your trains are going to be delayed, right. you know, and you're not going to be, I mean, how are you going to pay them? You know, it, it's right. going to cause more problems than any. So we'll, I'm interested to see how this summer of hell goes. Yeah. I also think it's weird that the governor called it the summer. Like, yeah. I guess bracing people, you know, for what could happen. Right. Thanks um, New York. Thanks. Yeah. Right. We have to make it so dramatic, yeah. you know, to, to put it out there. But I, I am interested to see what happens and yeah. if, if, you know, we do get, maybe we do get the better. It's, it, there's one big thing about this, this, apparently this technology, this, oh, I guess the infra, I don't want to call it technology because it's not that advanced, but you know, what they use to route these trains, they route so many different trains in through Penn station and the, the, the routing connections like that is what needs mm-hmm. to be fixed. So I guess they have to take off a bunch of things, take off different parts offline, which can limit how they can actually route trains through Penn station and limits where they can go. And, right. you know, we'll see, we'll see how crazy, hopefully it doesn't get too crazy. I'm, yeah. I'm my, my heart is with all those commuters because I, I yeah maybe imagine. we'll get some more bikers on the roads yeah yeah you see you're you're a biker I I have not taken that leap yeah, maybe I'm we'll make it safer for bikers on that the would be that would be nice yeah. maybe maybe that will inspire me to to bike more <laughs> I, I have not yet biked in the city at all I can't it's it's scary so let's transition a little bit to a discussion about you know our favorite G word gentrification and and how a community is actually trying to take steps ahead of the game to make sure that their interests are heard. And we've talked about, you know, how the city is changing many times and how, you know, a lot of time that change is driven by the real estate developers, the people with the money that are shifting the buildings around and rehabbing and and moving new people in and changing. Profiteers, yeah, outside profiteers. Absolutely. And that, that idea that the community does not have a lot of say you know, we've been various parts of New York City have had various different successes with getting community involvement. I know in East Harlem, for instance, there are institutions that are working to that have been working with the city's plan up there to change things and are trying to get their voices heard. So it's not that necessarily that doom and gloom story that they're not as involved, but it's still about keeping that involvement and making sure that the promises are right. kept. So, you know, in the Brownsville community, they have formed this coalition of residents staffers and officials and they are building a plan to really solidify where they want their neighborhood to go and what are some of the things that they want involved so that the people that are there are able to benefit from the changes that are happening and one of the cool things that i thought 
um, about this plan is that they really want to get youth involved right. in, you know, the cleanup and beautification processes. And they also want to create a space for entrepreneurs, um, which I think is really important spaces. You know, they want it to be a space for the arts and artistic communities, which I feel like these are all really great things. My question is, how do we get the people, again, with the money, writing the checks that are involved in actually, you know, building and rebuilding these communities to be honest and say, you know, say, yes, we're going to do these things and it's actually going to happen. Um, I don't know. I don't have any, it's a hard question. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people who are working on it, um, uh, say that they don't want their work to be co-opted. They don't want like, it's hard because like you can, I think we've, we've got the incentivization down. The city has figured out how to make developers include entrepreneurs and local, uh, local artists, but, Mm -hmm. It's hard to keep their, you know, their minds in it or their mm-hmm. hearts in it if they weren't to start with. Like, right. it's so easy to find the loopholes and to say you're going to do something and do something else. So, well, and it's all about, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, we want to offer this space up or we want to offer this to people, and you know, it's at a lower cost or things like that. But we still have to have the resources. You still have to have the funds, right. you know. And the the lack of capital is why there's so much lack of development by you know, people that are a part of these gentrifying communities because, you know, people that have the money aren't loaning to people within the community. They're loaning to people that are outside, as you were saying, and that money is not getting recycled back into the community. So I'm hoping that a plan like this will allow some of that money to get recycled back. What would you think, you know, how do you think that this, this city could better include residents and it includes because we have you know any city change you know goes through a very extensive um, process called ULERP to you know talk about or to basically identify what are going to be some of the dynamics of the change, what is the economic impact, what is the right. community impact. So there is a robust process, but still these changes get rolled through. It doesn't mean that people's voices are heard and that those changes are adopted. Um, so do you think there's any way that the city could better? engage and, and communicate and make sure that the voices of the residents are primary? The best way that I could think of is just to elevate the residents, make the residents the people who are making the decisions, mm-hmm. you know, support them and put them into positions of power and mm-hmm. decision making. Because if they're the ones making the decision, they're the most likely to have their neighbors benefit. Absolutely. And I think that's that really is the key. And, I, you know, one of the things that I've noticed about New York is New York has some very involved residents in every neighborhood in the city, you're really going to find people that are just really about, you know, their community, their neighborhood, making sure that it's the best that it can be. And so it's, it's, it's really a kind of a cool thing, you know, that we can get those people involved. Now it's a matter of making sure that those connections happen. So we're going to take a little break, play some music. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the G20 right here on Objections to the Rule.
empty street on the boulevard of broken dreams where the city sleeps and I'm the only one Pretend we're just two people and you're not better than me. I'd like to ask you some questions if we can speak honestly. What do you feel when you see all the homeless on the street? Who do you pray for a night before you go to sleep? I'm a 
Mr. President, you'd never take a walk with me. Welcome back to Objections to the Rule Live on Radio Free Brooklyn. That song, um, Dear Mr. President, was actually written during George W. Bush's presidency. So obviously the lyrics are a little bit tailored to that. But we were talking about during the break on what a uh, a version that was written for President Trump would sound like. And we believe that it would probably have a lot more rage yeah, to it. Pure rage. Just pure rage. Maybe like some yelling, some anger. Like I feel like it would be a lot of, uh, yeah. It, it would be a lot. So I don't, I, I would want to hear it though. So if anybody wants to, to yeah. compose that song, maybe Please, we'll play it here we'll play it. on Objection to the Rule. So let's transition into talking about the G20 summit. And this is a summit of world leaders of the major economies in the world where they talk about issues that affect, you know, the world. And this was the first one that President Trump has attended. And the reactions around the world have been interesting you know his camp says that it was a success um others say that he was yeah they they always do you know everything is a is a win um others are not so sure and you know they came very hard against the united states's decision to leave the paris climate accord so there's an interesting report from an abc politics editor um and this is abc as in the australian broadcasting company so i wanted to play this because it's just it's a perspective that honestly i don't think i've ever heard of a president ever so let's take a listen we already knew barry that the president of the united states has a particular skill set that he's identified an illness in western democracies but he has no cure for it and seems intent on exploiting it and we've also learned that he has no desire and no capacity to lead the world The G20 became the G19 as it ended. On the Paris Climate Accords, the US was left isolated and friendless. But given that that was always going to happen, a deft president would have found an issue around which he could rally most of the leaders. And he had the perfect one, North Korea's missile tests. So where was the G20 statement condemning North Korea, which would have put pressure on China and Russia? Other leaders expected it. They were prepared to back it, but it never came. There's a tendency among some hopeful souls to confuse the speeches written for Trump with the thoughts of the man himself. He did make some interesting scripted observations in Poland about defending the values of the West, and he's in a unique position. He's the one man who has the power to do something about it. But it's the unscripted Trump that's real, a man who barks out bile in 140 characters, who wastes his precious days as president at war with the West's institutions like the judiciary, independent government agencies and the free press. He was an uneasy, lonely, awkward figure at this gathering and you got the strong sense that some of the leaders are trying to find the best way to work around him. Donald Trump's a man who craves power because it burnishes his celebrity. To be constantly talking and talked about is all that really matters. And there is no value placed on the meaning of words. So what's said one day can be discarded the next. So what did we learn? We learned that Donald Trump has pressed fast forward on the decline of the United States as a global leader. He managed to isolate his nation, to confuse and alienate his allies and to diminish America. He will cede that power to China and Russia, two authoritarian states that will forge a very different set of rules for the 21st century. Some will cheer the decline of America, but I think we'll miss it when it's gone. And that's the biggest threat to the values of the West, which he claims to hold so dear. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So 
That was um, politics editor from the Australian broadcasting company, Chris Ullman, who made that report after the G20 this weekend. And those are really strong words. Like that was, you know, the decline of, of, you know, it's, this is the image that now is resonating globally about our country and about our leader. And his participation in what is supposed to be a global event about, you know, forwarding these ideas of, of preserving our climate and, and making trade more equitable and, and all of these things that are supposed to benefit us, right. you know, ostensibly. But, we're, you know, we're talking about capitalist entities. We're talking about governments. We, right. You know, we, we aren't so rosy colored to think that, you know, this is not there aren't problems with this. But we have to look at this event and what it means, you know, what did you think about the, you know, Omen's words? Do you think he was being overdramatic or do you think that, you know, we we have a reason to worry as right. we kind of felt? Well, I mean, first of all, it sounded like a Tumblr rant, you know, it didn't sound like exactly a newscast yeah. that we would think of. But, you know, it, it felt it felt true. It felt like voice the voices of my worries mm-hmm. for the past, like, however many months this has been going on, you know, seven months now. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what his, uh, his motive was for, for projecting in that way. Yeah. Um, it's very non-traditional, right? You know, it's not, um, it was kind of like more of an editorialized opinion and, you know, I think that, you know, taking it that, that grain of salt, like it, it is very interesting to hear. Um, and it's not something that you would really you know, maybe you would hear it from from like Auntie Maxine, you know, in that right. regard. But like you wouldn't necessarily hear it on a national broadcaster. Yeah, I almost wonder if it was supposed to be. I mean, it sounded like a challenge, you know, and there is one person in government right now who will uh, reliably respond to a challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe he was trying to push Trump to do something. Yeah. You know, he does like, you know, maybe it is to goad him into, you know, right. some sort of reaction. Right. Um, the G20 released their statement about about, you know, the basically their findings of the the talks that happened there, which are closed door. And the one big thing was obviously the discussion about Paris and our withdrawal from the climate accords, which really kind of can't happen, but yeah. is sort of, I guess, trying to happen. Um, and in the statement, they say, we take note of the decision of the United States of America to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. The United States announced it will immediately cease the implementation of its current, current nationally determined contribution and affirms its strong commitment to an approach that lowers emissions while supporting economic growth and improving energy security needs. The United States of America states it will endeavor to work closely with other countries to help them access and use fossil fuels more cleanly and efficiently and help deploy renewable and other clean energy sources, given the importance of energy access and security in their nationally determined contributions. The leaders of the G20 members state that the Paris Agreement is irreversible. We reiterate the importance of fulfilling the UNFCCC commitment by developed countries in providing means of implementation, including financial resources, to assist developing countries with respect to both mitigation and adaptation actions in line with Paris outcomes. And note the OECD's report, Investing in Climate, Investing in Growth. We reaffirm our strong commitment to the Paris Agreement, moving swiftly towards its full implementation in accordance with the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities in light of the different national circumstances. And to this end, we agreed to the G20 Hamburg Climate Energy Action Plan as set out in our annex. So it was kind of like a screw you. Like, we see what you're doing, America, but 
Right, but you can't do that, and there's no need to. <laughs> there's no need to. This is silly. Like, and and that's I think one of the things that kind of touched off in that report um, from Omen is just like these decisions. Do they make? They don't make yeah. sense to most people that are watching this theater occurring. Right. It's like, what interest are they in? Obviously, you know, there are people that are going to profit from this decision. There are people that are going to be able to capitalize on this, and. Who are the people that are going to lose? Is it going to be, you know, the American people, the the planet? Because right. we've decided that the best course of action is to not go along with pretty much every other nation in, in the world, you know, on this kind of very weird trajectory towards trying to be the best. You know, it, it's so puzzling. Like, it's just so puzzling. You know, also puzzling is the fact that Donald Trump's daughter, President Trump's daughter, Ivanka Trump, sat in, sat in yeah. on uh, some on a meeting at the G20, and apparently it was for a temporary period of time um, because President Trump was at another meeting. But you know, I mean, first of all, you're the pre- you have one job when you're at the G20. You have one job, right. so like you're supposed to go to these things. So like, why? It's so unprecedented. And then the fact that it's his daughter, obviously, who has this, you know, a senior role in his right. administration. Unpaid, yeah. Unpaid, yeah, which is weird. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, did you have a reaction to to that? Did you did you think it odd? I, You know, it yeah. seemed odd to me. Just more of this, like, visceral, gross feeling, mm-hmm. you know, like, this is not the way it's... So, like, establishment is as establishment does. Like, yeah. you know, we don't need a lot of what's been what the traditions that we have as a government and some of those are corrupt but so you know it it's useful to have like a break from tradition but when it's just using your family members who are unqualified and who have their own agendas instead of you who are also unqualified and have your own agendas just like where are we going? Where, and What's it, happening? It keeps on getting deeper and deeper. I remember the first announcement they were like giving, you know, trying to obtain security clearance for her. And I'm like, but for what? Right. Like what? You know, if if the family was supposed to divest from it, it's just it's it was mucky from the start. And then, you know, she's having more and more and more involvement and, and sitting in on these meetings. And it's it's sending a message that you know we really don't take it seriously right you know and and i that i feel like that has a lot of detrimental effects that you know we haven't even we, we don't even know the the scale of because right because if you're just going against everything we have you're ignoring democracy you're ignoring the people who have voted and worked hard to make things the way they are mm-hmm. so and one of the big news items that came out of this summit was actually the protests outside of it. Um, Hamburg saw protests um, throughout the G20 summit. And although it was not, you know, the BBC reported, obviously it was not related necessarily to Trump. These protests happen during these summits. Um, but I think that, you know, the fact that there is such volatile protest at this event says, you know, it, it says something and it, it says that, I, you know, one of the things that I feel like we have to look at is that we have these people that are in this place that are making these very important decisions. And in the case of the United States, we know that our leader is not really making decisions that, you know, are in the best interest of, of, um, of you know, a big group of the population. Right. So, you know, we, these big decisions are being made by this very small group of powerful people. And, you know, why, why wouldn't people protest? Like more people need to have their voices heard. And, and we keep on getting into these we, we keep on seeing these situations where voices are suppressed and 
voices are rising up and then continuing to be suppressed and being told that we don't have the right to speak up. And I feel like, you know, this idea of what is peaceful protest versus not peaceful protest, right. you know, protesting to me isn't, you know, peaceful protest is kind of a, a misnomer because they're only going to think it's peaceful if you don't really challenge them. Right. But if you get too loud or you get too quote unquote violent or you, you know, get too in their face, then it's no longer peaceful. Right. It's only peaceful if you're docile. It's only peaceful if you don't try to actually make a change to the establishment. So it's it's almost, you know, when, when Angela Merkel says something, you know, I can always respect the peaceful protests, which is a paraphrase of something that many leaders say when they're faced with this thing. It's like, well, you want people to be complacent. Yeah, you can rah, rah, rah in the streets, but don't actually try to change anything through voice or violence, like is being used against us. Force and violence is being used against people. Right. So why can't the people respond in force and violence when their lives are being challenged? You know, not that I am advocating for anybody to go out and, and incite violence, but we have to understand that these are cause and effect relationships and people feeling oppressed can't just sit by and, and be peaceful. Right. Right. And, you know, peaceful uh, protests turn violent when, uh, when they're, uh, when they're violently interrogated and stopped. So Absolutely. violence comes from outside. Absolutely. Absolutely. And these, you know, these, those, these peace officers could protect the rights of the people to protest. They could, you know, allow them to, participate and challenge the system and protect their rights, just like they protect the rights of the the rich. But that's not what's happening. You know, we're seeing them in riot gear. We're right. seeing them being very combative. They're spraying mace. They're using, you know, weapons. They're putting people to the ground. You know, it, it it's, again, back to this idea of what are these people that are peace officers supposed to be doing in relationship to us as the people that are supposed to be protected. Um, any final thoughts on the G20 before we get into talking about the 4th of July? Uh, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder where we'll be next year. Uh, yeah. I think that that's, that is, that is time will tell. And we, you know, so much could happen right. in between now and then that it'll be, it will be interesting to see, you know, we maybe maybe some things will shift positively. Well, mm -hmm. we could we can we can be positive. We'll end this segment with a we can hope. We can hope <laughs> with hope. Yes, this clip that I'm going to play next is from a reading from James Earl Jones, where he recites parts of Frederick Douglass's famous speech, where he addressed a bunch of people on the Fourth of July and basically asked them, "Why am I here?" <laughs> Why am I addressing you about a country that has never accepted me? Um, so I'm going to play a little bit of this clip, and then we're going to talk about the 4th of July and whether or not it is patriotism or cognitive dissonance. I'm not sure yet. We'll be back in a moment on Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, once a slave, became a brilliant and powerful leader of the anti-slavery movement. In 1852, he was asked to speak in celebration of the 4th of July. Fellow citizens, pardon me and allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering 
to the national altar and to confess their benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes that would, it, that would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation of the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour forth a stream, a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed and the crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Yes, yes. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was a very, very dramatic yeah, reading very of some of the work of Frederick Douglass. Um, what is the slave to the fourth or what is Fourth of July to the slave? And you know that to me is it, it really puts in perspective this discussion about. What does Independence Day mean when you don't feel like people are free and you right. don't feel like this country represents um, it, it, it? What if you feel like you're not represented by what's going on, yet you're expected to put on your red, white and blue and get out and go and watch the fireworks? You know, what do you think about the idea of the Fourth of July in our contemporary society? Uh, it's hard. My immediate reaction actually changes the subject, which is not something I'm trying to do, but it brings me uh, to the uh, Israel's uh, Independence Day is known as the Nakba, uh, the catastrophe by um, by Palestinians in the Palestinian uh, community in, is in Israel and in Palestine. Uh, so while people are celebrating throughout the country and largely in this country, uh, you know, people are protesting, people are in mourning for lives lost and lives that continue to be lost. And that's something that's happening largely here, too. You know, a lot of black lives are still lost all the time, still destroyed or imprisoned. And what are we supposed to do? But a lot of people continue to celebrate. You know, people celebrate, uh, people who don't have that history, cultural history celebrate, and people who do also feel a strong connection to the country. So I, it's hard to tell, yeah, you know. It's, it's not a monolithic thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think back to my celebration of the holiday. You know, I didn't necessarily put the happy 4th of July Independence Day right. all over Facebook. I wasn't about that. It was very much more reflective, but I still went time and had, you know, went out with friends and right. went to barbecue, you know, because it is a part of the culture. It's a part of the fabric. But I think, you know, as we realize more that we need to deconstruct some of these ideas about America that we've kind of taken blindly, you know, right. this blind patriotism and belief that America is the greatest without actually doing the real work to make it the greatest. We're, we're going to be in this place where we're feeling this sense of cognitive dissonance about what we feel about the country versus what people want us to feel, Right, you know? What do you think about the idea that we should do more to honor and remember, you know, the indigenous populations, the First Nations, the native people that were destroyed yeah. because of our desire to be an independent nation? You know, these people were lost their land, their homes, their ancestors, you know, over the course of hundreds of years in the name of this country. And, you know, I think about what it must mean. We, we talked about, there's this clip going around, um, which is actually from some First Nations um, leaders in Canada and asking about Trudeau. And, and the, the reporter asked a very, you know, tone deaf question right. about whether or not Trudeau has done enough you don't know, no, you can't right. possibly have done enough until you return this land back to these people that right. feel like they're, they're, that their land has been taken. Their, their connection to their 
ancestors and their history has been taken and you've reconditioned them by putting them into these schools, you know, right. and, and indoctrinating them with, right. with this new culture and taking them away from families, taking them away from yeah. families separated them. And, and we did the same thing here in the United States. You know, the people that did survive all of the, the horrible tragedies that were enacted upon native populations were forced to live in squalor's conditions were separated from resources and are still living, you know, in, in, in right. much worse conditions than and addiction, yeah. anyone should have to live in in the United States of America. It's so overwhelmingly sad that I think it's easier to just look at fireworks and eat, you know, barbecue right. than to think about the atrocities that have been enacted upon right. this very land. Right. How do, how do we bring those things together? There's no atonement. There's no reconciliation. No. You know? And there's no education. You know, I don't think there's... In schools, this is how we were, we learned it. You know, this is a celebration, and maybe we have a different union on the na- mm-hmm. Native Americans, but oh, we're yeah. not putting it together. Oh yeah, well you know, I think back to I, you know, I always think about the fact that I, you know, I got a very good education that had to be decolonized for yeah. you know, it's still happening because what we learned, you know, when I was a kid, you know, we learned about. We did learn about the native populations. We didn't learn about the atrocities until right. we got much older. And then even then it was like they were, it were they were presented as like a necessary thing. It was right. never presented that. You right. Know, or equal sides. Yeah. Fighting. Yeah. It was right. never presented as these invaders yeah. came and Power basically squatted. Yeah. yeah. And so it's always kind of presented as this 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 victorious kind of charge to create this new beautiful land for everybody which really meant white people and and to you know there were through these partnerships and and allegiances with these populations we fostered this community growth and by allegiances and partnerships they meant like death and destruction and disease and displacement so it's just like always these narratives have been very like you know the history is to the the spoil of the victors is there some saying like that basically if you win you get to write the history and now we're in this period where we're learning the real history and until we come to terms with it, I, I think this conflict is going to continue. This this distance is yeah. going to continue. It's it's a really hard place to be in. And I, you know, I want to celebrate America. I, I do. I like America. I've enjoyed living here. You know, I, yeah. I believe in what this country can be, but it's not no. what, you know, I, I maybe there are people that believe it is what they want it to be. But I don't. We're not there. No, we're still not there. We're almost done. Final thoughts. <laughs> Happy Fourth of July! <laughs> yeah, happy happy belated Fourth of July. I think, you know, the good thing is if you got to spend some time with people you love. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. You know, despite all the horrible things that we're thinking about where we are right now, um, you know, it does give us hope. Maybe we won't get better. We can continue to. Hope you had a good barbecue. Yeah, 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 I did. I made some ribs. That was great. Oh, it's nice. it good times. It's good times. Well, thank you so much for listening to us on Objection to the Rule again this week. We will be back in next week live with more current affairs politics talk for you right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye. Bye.